the debate, his declaration, and your decision. The chief priest, the high priest, demanded, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned Jesus as deserving death. What is your decision? We begin pretty much where we will move to conclusion. What is your decision on Jesus the Messiah? On Jesus the Messiah as the Son of Man, who has all authority, all heavenly authority, the one who is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Debates matter. Declarations matter. And then, yes, you must decide. And your decision matters. I mean, matters not just for a day, it matters forever. The debate. With that title, some of us, our minds may immediately go to what happened just this past Thursday night, right, with the second of the two uh, debates of the presidential election season before us here in the United States of America in the fall of 2020 amid the presidential election. I wouldn't say prior to the presidential election because over a third of the people who are going to vote have already <laughs> voted. We are in the midst of the presidential election right now. The debate, the declarations, and your decision. The sermon is not on the current presidential debate, but I will, or election, but I will say this vote, as Proverbs 11.11 says, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, the city is overthrown. It's important for us to be faithful citizens and to vote. The debate, the declaration, and decisions. It's Reformation Sunday, so actually, mainly, even more so where my head was as far as history, both over the past week or over the past 500 years or so, takes us back to Martin Luther and the outbreak of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you know, I think most of you know, the reason we remember Reformation Sunday is the last Sunday in October. It reminds us that in 1517, on the eve of All Saints Day, on October the 31st, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses uh, to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, where Luther was not only an Augustinian prior, friar, but also was a professor of theology, a doctor of theology. Um, typically, it's commonly referred to October 31st, 1517, as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. 
In fact, really, it's the spark or, or a key event that may lead to the Protestant Reformation. The truth is, as most serious scholars of history and the Reformation know, it was a process over the next several years. Luther really thought he was engaging in a theological debate within the Roman Catholic Church, had no intention of leaving the Roman Catholic Church in October of 1517 when he started disputing the issue of indulgences and also raised some other key issues in the midst of his dispute over the issue of indulgences. The other big date that a lot of folks who know a little bit about church history will remember is not only October 31, 1517, but then in uh, April and May of uh, 1521 uh, with the uh, imperial diet at Worms where Luther, as part of the imperial diet, they had a whole lot of issues going on, including how the Holy Roman Empire was going to deal with the Islamic threat, etc. all kinds of issues going on at that diet. But the big concern internally was, what are we going to do with this radical uh, friar or monk, Martin Luther, and this basic revolution that he's, he's threatening uh, within the empire? And you know, Luther is brought before the imperial diet, and uh, it's demanded that he recant everything that he said over the last several years, and that he also acknowledge um, his need for punishment. And therefore, if he does all that, he won't be burned at the stake. Uh, th this is what's going on in 1521, in the spring of 1521, and you may remember that after struggling over this issue, Luther famously comes forward and says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. If you can show me anything that I've said that is not consistent with the word of God, I will recant, but otherwise, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. He's not burned at the stake. Uh, Frederick and uh, his own prince and others allow him to escape before he is uh, condemned and sentenced to be burned at the stake. And so that's the Diet of Worms in the spring of 1521. Well, what was going on in between? Well, one thing that was going on in between is after the 95 Theses in the fall of 1517, there was a series of three debates that happened over the course of a year and a half, and in those debates, Martin Luther made a number of declarations that forced him personally, as well as everyone who was debating with him or concerned with him, to make decisions. So, in other words, between these two big events that a lot of people who know a little bit about church history know about, Diet of Worms and Wittenberg, 95 Theses, uh, there are, among other things, a series of these three debates. You've got uh, the Heidelberg Disputation in the spring of 1518. You have the debate at the Imperial Diet at Augsburg in October of 1518. And then ultimately you have the Leipzig debates in the summer, June and July of 1519. And what's going on here? Well, see, every time you get into a debate, and you know this from watching presidential debates and other kind of debates, people get pushed into corners where they're either going to say something 
or they're gonna remain silent, but they, they get in certain situations where they pretty much say more maybe than they intended to say, or they realize this is a moment where I need to be entirely clear, this is where I'm coming from. And this is what happened in each of these three debates that Martin Luther was involved in, in this series of time that led up to the fact that he understood, you know what? I'm not gonna be able to stay in the Roman Catholic Church. It's increasingly unlikely that we can actually reform the Roman Catholic Church. If we're gonna be true to Christ and to his scripture, I'm gonna to have to do something new. In the Heidelberg Disputation, just, just a few months after the 95 Theses, you can see Luther's theology maturing to the point where he lays out that great juxtaposition, that, that, uh, that key juxtaposition that pretty much drives his theology and key core Protestant theology, which is the distinction between a theology of human glory on the one hand, that we and that the church can be justified by our works and by our ritual, theology of human glory versus a theology of the cross. If you go back and read Luther's theses for the Heidelberg Disputation, you'll see all this laid out. It is key core theology. And, and, and what's going on with the Heidelberg Disputation is that Luther ultimately is going to move in the direction of not just quibbling with indulgences and not just raising issues about salvation and free will and God's grace, but being increasingly clear on what we would refer to as the core solas of what Protestants believe, that we are saved or justified by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus. You can see that all pretty much laid out in Luther's theses at the debate, at the disputation at Heidelberg. And then he really did not want to be summoned, but he was summoned by the imperial diot to come and debate with Cardinal Cajetan in Augsburg in the fall of 1518. And what Cardinal Cajetan was saying was, you have no right to dispute indulgences or the Pope's infallible power to declare indulgences. Cajetan went back and repeatedly cited Aquinas as, as well as Clement VI papal bull from 1343, Unigenitus, which declared, I mean, it's just, in the Catholic Church, it's infallible word from the Pope about the treasury of merit, one, linked to the concept of indulgences. And Luther comes back in these debates and says, show me in the Bible the treasury of merits. It's not there. And Luther then says, therefore, indulgences are corrupt, a corrupt practice of the church, unscriptural. At this point, it's clear that we've moved on to and we've added into what was already implicit in Luther's earlier debates and theses, the concept of 
sola scriptura, that scripture is authoritative over any papal or conciliar um, declaration. By the time then you get to the Leipzig debates with Johann Eck in the summer of 1519, Luther doubles down on everything. He just doubles down on everything. I mean, he, he, um, he even says, and, and Eck, it's acknowledged, Eck beats Luther at the debate, so to speak, because Eck, Johann Eck incriminates Luther by saying, you understand that your positions are agreeing with Johann Hus, with Jan Hus, from a century ago, who was excommunicated and burned at the stake, the Bohemian, the Czech, you know, reformer within the Catholic Church, burned at the stake in the 1400s. What you're stating agrees with him about the fact that there is no head of the church except Jesus Christ alone. The Pope is not the head of the church, even the earthly church. You're disputing everything about authority of the church, and uh, you're making statements that the councils of the church as well as the Pope can err. You're disrupting the entire foundation of our belief system and of our Catholic beliefs. And you're saying sola scriptura. And Luther said, yes. And the Hussites were, in fact, not all wrong, dear doctor. These debates, these declarations were staggering. By the summer of 1519, if you knew your theology and the implications, there really was going to be a revolution. And so what Luther then wrote in all his books in 1520 increasingly became more and more revolutionary to the point that you arrive, you arrive at the Diet of Worms, and there is no question that Luther either is going to have to concede to everything that he disagrees with, or he's going to have to make a decision that I'm willing to be burned at the stake right here and right now, but I'm going to stand with we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that our sole ultimate authority is Scripture alone, and that it's not a theology of our works or our rituals or our glory that justifies us before God. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. See, debates matter. And you need to pay attention to the declarations that are made in debates. What is said and what's behind what's said and what is out in front of what's said and your decision in response. What is your decision? The Son of God was arrested and arraigned. I mean, get this picture. He's the Son of God. (laughs) The Son of God arrested like a criminal and arraigned and brought before the highest officials of Israel, of the Jewish religion. He is their Messiah, 
and they proceed to not only reject him, but conspire to condemn him to death. They represent the power of the world, the power of what works now, what seems to be now. Here he is, powerless, seemingly powerless, by the world's standards before them. They're the big shots. He's the revolutionary from the outskirts. And all his people have bailed on him. Even the one who supposedly is there to help him, Simon Peter, is about to deny him in Simon Peter's trial down below, literally going on down below. At the same time, Jesus is being tried up above in the great room of the home of the high priest Caiaphas. There is Simon Peter down below, the last disciple who's supposedly going to help him out, going to deny him three times. At the same time, Jesus is giving the good confession. There cannot be a greater contrast. Here we have, Mark doesn't identify this high priest, but we know who he is, and Matthew specifically gives his name. We're talking about Caiaphas, in other words, Joseph ben Caiaphas, the high priest who served as high priest of Israel in in Jerusalem for the longest period of time of any high priest in the entire period of the Roman dominance over Palestine. Uh, Joseph ben Caiaphas, high priest from A.D. 18 through A.D. 36. He's Sadducean aristocracy. That's why he's in his position, and he is politically connected and a political operative. Let me make this very clear. The high priest was not elected by the Jews. The high priest was appointed by the Roman governor of the larger province of Syria. This man serves under the auspices of the Roman Empire as the local religious high official for the Jews under subjection to Rome. He's really connected, Caiaphas is. He is the son-in-law of Annas, former high priest. And this family, you ever been in situations where one family pretty much dominates an entire society or entire You know, it's like, well, yeah, he was the president, and then she was the senator, and then he was the governor. It's that kind of family that Caiaphas is involved in. Um, The Jewish historian from the period, Josephus, tells us that Caiaphas, during the final 10 years of his reign as high priest, worked very closely with Pontius Pilate, who was the prefect of Judea. Now, they both had the same boss, Vitellius, the governor of Syria. Judea is a prefect under the larger province of Syria. And in 36, in AD 36, a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Vitellius, governor of the Roman province of Syria, deposed both Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas, for their corruption and brutality. So, 
I mean, this is the man of the world we're talking about. This is, you want to talk about Pope Leo and Martin Luther, okay? <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk also about Joseph ben Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas and Jesus Christ. What's your decision? By the eyes of the world, you're going to go with Joseph Caiaphas. Ain't no question about it. This guy's been in power forever, right? He's from the family that's been in power forever. He's the aristocrat. He went to all the right schools. He goes to all the right parties. He's in all right, right, right clubs. In fact, you can't get into a club unless you're a buddy of his. This is Joseph Caiaphas, and this is Jesus Christ. What's your decision? What is your decision? This is the setting. It's an overnight trial. It is a violation of Jewish law and, and Roman law. It's against all the codes, but it is going down in the early morning hours, heading towards Jesus's crucifixion. And Jesus knows, he knows this is all part of the plan. Caiaphas, though, with all the power, it's pretty amusing when you read through this, pretty amusing with all this power and pulling all this together and this inappropriate illegal trial going on, supposed trial, supposed meeting the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas's own house. I mean, not at the, not at the temple, not at the, the court of unhewn stones, you know. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is out at Caiaphas's house in the middle of the night, and still they can't get witnesses to agree with each other. It's total confusion, total confusion. Finally, Caiaphas decides to take matters into his own hands. He himself comes before Jesus. He's not able to sit back and just watch the machinery work. It's not going to go down that way. Have you no answer to make? He questions, he threatens Jesus. What is this that these men are testifying against you? And Jesus remains silent. He makes no answer. He doesn't reply to Caiaphas's first series of questions because they arise from clearly convoluted witnesses and evidence. And on top of that, Jesus could refute all this, right? But his time has come. He's not going to get into, well, you know, I did say this, but I'm speaking metaphorically, and that's not illegal under the code or under the law, under the Torah. You know, and let me explain this. Let me get out of this situation. Jesus is not going to mess with all that. Which brings us to the moment that Jesus knows is coming. Jesus, throughout his ministry, has been telling his disciples, don't tell everybody yet. And part of the reason is, clearly that the zealots and the nationalists would have acclaimed Jesus as the new king and tried to lead a revolution against Rome. Now, there's no way Jesus is going to be the instigator of a, or the cause of a revolution, because everybody can see here he is, bare by himself, totally powerless before the powers that be. Nobody's going to try to start a revolution that night. And so now, after remaining pretty quiet under the lid on his identity in public. Now the time has come. And the high priest asked him, with ridicule, surely, are you the Christ? Come on. The son of the blessed? That's a euphemism for saying you're the son of God? Really? Now, if Jesus refuses to answer this second question, he will be denying who he is, who God is, 
Jesus' identity, his mission, and the kingdom itself. Jesus would have been denying what was coming, what he needed to do under the Father's will and for your salvation and your capability to make a response for salvation. Are you the Messiah? Hmm? The son of the blessed? Really? So Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I've spoken previously in this series, particularly during Holy Week, about that what theologians call Jesus' active obedience. Jesus, in some ways, fulfills the law through passive obedience, his, his death on the cross, for instance. But, but there are moments where we see, in, in shining glory, Jesus' active obedience, and we see it going on over and over again this night and heading to the cross, and here it is at the ultimate apex and not just at Gethsemane, I talked, I preached about Jesus' active obedience there, but now, now, now we see it. Here is the climax, really, of the gospel declaration of Jesus. I mean, you know, you, you've got 829, you are the Christ, Simon Peter. You've got uh, Mark 9, verse 7, uh, the Father's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Now you have Jesus himself. And compare this, Jesus' affirmations, with Peter's denials going on at the same time. I mean, it, it is in bold, bold relief here. I'll come back to what Jesus says. Let's just go ahead and go through the judgment. So Joseph Caiaphas' judgment. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? We don't need to hear from witnesses. We've all heard it ourselves. So what is your decision? And they all condemn Jesus as deserving death. Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him. And then back to Mark 14, verse 65, and some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows, fulfilling, of course, Isaiah 50, verse 6, I've taken you here recently again today, uh, Isaiah 50, verse 6, the suffering servant, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. There it is. Jesus is no longer holding back. Jesus said, ego me, I am. That's God talk. That's not talk about God. That is God talking about himself. Moses said, what's your name? Who are you? And God said, from the midst of the burning bush, I am. I am who I am. Jesus said, yep, I am. And then he says this, and you will see the Son of Man, we ask to theu, seated at the right hand of power, that's talking about God there, 
and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting directly from these key verses of who he is. If you don't know these verses, if you're not with me on Wednesday night or not paying attention to these sermons, you really need to go back and know these verses. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, like a Son of Man. Bar Anosh now, the Aramaic here, it's different than Ben-Adam that you see all throughout the Old Testament. This is a specific title related to the Daniel 7 prophecy. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Who can walk up to the Ancient of Days? Who can walk up to God? Only God himself. This one would have to be divine, this son of man, and was presented before him. And he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language should obey him. This must be God himself, but we've got God, so how do we have this? We've got one like the Son of Man walking up and being given all the divine authority. Yes, we're talking about the Son of God who is the Son of Man who comes to judge. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And then also, uh, you know this, I've pretty much been over this verse extensively in this sermon series and definitely on Wednesday nights, the most quoted, the most cited verse from the Old Testament, all the New Testament, the key, a key to understanding who Jesus is from the Psalm of David, uh, 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adon, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Go back and read Mark 12, 35 through 37, as well as listen to that sermon that I gave on uh, David's affirmation of Jesus and his prophecy of the coming Jesus as the Lord. Jesus is saying, yes, you are going to see me in majesty, and not just when I come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. You're going to see it momentarily because I will be raised up on the third day, and I will be seated at the right hand of God on high in my ascension, and you will all be subject to my authority. And yes, I will come again to judge the living and the dead. There is going to be the great reversal. You, with all your worldly power, Joseph Caiaphas and all the rest of you, you will be judged under my cross and under who I am and God's justice and God's righteousness. Yes, there will be the great reversal. The judges will be judged by the Son of Man, and so will all of us. But here's the good news of the great reversal. Jesus is going to take our place. That's exactly what he's saying when he says all this. He declares who he is, and his decision is sure that he's going to stand in for everyone who believes in him. That's the way the good news works in the judgment. It's incredible. It's incredible that the Son of Man, with all this authority, who will be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he steps in for you and for me. He steps in even for Simon Peter, who denies him three times right when he's making his own declaration. And let me paint this for you too. This high priest, in this case, Joseph ben Caiaphas, um, he is the one who, once a year under the Torah, under the Jewish law, on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, 
goes into God's presence in the Holy of Holies, the Sanctus Sanctorum, okay? And lays the sin of Israel on the scapegoat. And the scapegoat bears all the sin. It is not by accident at all that the ultimate, the Christological climax of the entire gospel, as Mark gives it to us, happens as Jesus directly face-to-face with the high priest says, yes, I am. I'm all that. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one who will be seated at the right hand. But I'm also, go ahead, send me. I'm the scapegoat. You're the high priest. It's fine. That's what's going on in this debate. Who do you think won the debate? Looked like the next couple of days, Caiaphas won hands down. But what do you see? What do you see right now in your life? I want to invite you today, especially on Reformation Sunday, to understand the difference between what seems and what really is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the judge. What is your decision? If he is who he says he is, then your whole life needs to be turned upside down. Not just the Roman Catholic Church turned upside down, not just, you know, medieval to Renaissance Europe turned. I'm talking about your house, your priorities, your life, your family. What is your decision? If he is the Son of God, if he is the Lord of Lords, then everything changes your priorities, the way you spend your time, the way you think, the way you use or don't use social media, the way you use your money, the way you teach your children, everything is different. It's not a nice add-on. He's not a nice add-on. He's everything. If he is who he says he is, as we just read in Mark chapter 14, verse 62, that is the debate. He's made his declaration. I pray God that you decide in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says you are Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.